The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the one coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Nine years ago today, Doug proposed to me. We were walking on Sutliff Bridge. Doug fell behind, and when I turned around, he was on one knee, which I guess made us kind of eye level, <laughs> with his outstretched hand and a ring in it. He asked me to marry him. I said yes, and we kissed. Right then, these ladies came running over to us saying they had witnessed the proposal and had taken photos, which was sweet. And then they looked at Doug and said, Hey, wait a minute. Aren't you the Big Grove guy? So Big Grove and Solon had opened only two weeks before. Little did either of us know how many times he would be asked that in the years to come. I said to the women, Hey, maybe I could get that ring on my finger before we talk shop. At any rate, it's a good story, and because of them, we have photos of that special moment. Since then, I give God thanks daily for this man who loves me and has been there for me since the very beginning. I am, at times, surprisingly, not easy to love. I would say that most people, at times, are not easy to love. I am the daughter of a bipolar mother. I find it difficult to trust love, but Doug has shown patience steadfastness and calm during those times when I am most at war with myself. Also, he makes me laugh. Like all marriages and indeed all relationships, we love each other even during those times when we might not necessarily like each other. Every relationship, I think, has times when you look at the other person and think, I wonder what I was thinking. This is normal in every human relationship, at least every honest one. Sometimes we love a person even when we might not like them at the moment. 
My students are familiar with a story I have from college, maybe I've shared it with you before, I cannot remember. I was traveling in Ireland years ago in college with my best friend Susan. One night in Dublin as we were getting ready to go out, she sat down next to me and she said, Sarah, there's something I need to tell you and it might cost us our friendship, but I believe it to be worth the risk. You are one of the meanest people I have ever met. I don't think you intend to be she said, but you are sarcastic. You are snarky and it hurts me. Don't like you right now, but I love you enough to tell you this. We remained friends for years after that and her love for me changed me for the better. Susan loved me, but she sure did not like me that night in Dublin. Sometimes we love a person even when we don't like them. This is true even with parent-child relationships. I've shared with you before that I grew up not wanting to have children. In fact, after graduating from seminary, I was preparing to pursue my PhD, but then life took me in a different direction, including being a mother of three sons. I've had more than my fair share of high moments when the planets aligned and I felt affirmed and confident in my choice to become a mom. The times I don't share with you, however, are the times when I fail miserably, times when I am certain my sons are disappointed in me, like the time I yelled so loud at the boys that I choked myself, which they found amusing, or the time I let Philip ride his tricycle down our outdoor slide, which did not end well, or the time I let an all-too-young Jacob drive a gator and watch him smash into a fence, or the time I let Christian slide down the stairs in a laundry basket like it was the luge in the Winter Olympics, or the time I yelled at them sobbing with the words, I could have been something, you know, something I was good at. That last one was one of my lowest moments as a mother, and of course, the one that all three of them remember. I'm certain there have been plenty of times when my children have not necessarily liked me either, although I'm sure they love me. There have been plenty of times I have not necessarily liked them, although I will always love them. When they were tiny, I didn't always like being vomited on or peed on, and I didn't always like the fact that they could rip through a clean room like a tornado and destroy it in two minutes flat. I didn't like that at all. And then when they discovered free will as adolescents, I didn't always like being argued with or debated with or challenged on topics and issues where I clearly am the intellectual superior. At times of desperation, I have even resorted to saying, because I'm your mother, that's why, something I swore I would never, ever do, just to settle an argument in my favor. At one point during COVID lockdown, after so much together time, I remember Jake saying, well, I guess we're at the point when we start killing and eating one another who wants to start. I don't always like my kids, but I would lay down my life for them in a heartbeat, and they know it. Sometimes God does not always like God's people either, although God loves them. I very much adore our first reading from Exodus today. In this reading, God has had it. I mean, had it. We're not that far into the Bible here, only the second book, and yet God has already lost God's patience. 
It reminds me of one of the first trips we took with the boys shortly after Doug and I were married. He had carefully divided the space in the back of the Yukon for each of them to have their own area. And even before we reached the end of the block, they were fighting and wrestling. Already on their first long journey out of Egypt towards the promised land, God is at odds with God's people and tells Moses, that's it. Get out of the way, Moses, so I can destroy these evil and rebellious people. Here, Moses and God kind of sound like parents fighting when their kids have done something bad. God says, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, are stiff-necked and twisted. They look to gods for life. They want to destroy them, so get out of my way. And Moses replies, hang on a second, God. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, are still your people. And here Moses is particularly shrewd. You don't really want to destroy them, do you? You don't want the Egyptians saying you saved your own people only to destroy them, do you? How would that look? These people, your people, who have invoked your wrath and your fury are also the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember them? You weren't always crazy about them either, but you promised to be their God. And they promised to be your people. You promised to love them even when you don't like them. And God changes God's mind and does not destroy them. On the one hand, <clears throat> God is not justified in God's rant because Moses is right. God did make a covenant with the house of Israel to be their God, and God keeps God's promises. On the other hand, God is justified in God's anger because the first time Moses leaves the people to go up the mountain to talk to God to get the Ten Commandments and to hash out the endless details of laws governing them as God's holy people, from burnt offerings to anointing oil to priestly vestments and ordinations to rules of social and religious justice to the exact dimensions of the tabernacle and the ark. The moment all of that happens and Moses leaves, they collect all of their gold and they fashion a golden calf and they worship it. Their babysitter is gone 40 days. And in that time, they go from a hopeful, albeit a bit whiny people, to a lawless bunch of hooligans doesn't take long for society to unravel, does it? So you could say God's anger is justified when looking at these people whom God has chosen to be God's people, has delivered from slavery, has promised to be faithful to, thinking, how can I make anything good come from them? How can I make from them a people, a house, much less a nation, when they cannot even remain faithful 40 short days? Right now, I love them, but I certainly don't like them. We encounter a similar situation in the second reading where Paul writes to his dear friend Timothy, who is left alone to pastor his congregation in Ephesus. The congregation is rife with false teachers who are spreading unsound doctrine, threatening to destroy the foundation of faith carefully laid by Paul and Timothy. While Timothy despairs, thinking, can anything good come from this young church barely 75 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Can this church stand? How can I build a congregation when our first generation of pastors are false? I don't like them at all right now. But Paul offers encouragement in his typical arrogant way by saying, yes, they're sinners, but I'm the biggest sinner of all. 
And if God can forgive me, God can forgive your people. You don't have to like them right now, but do love them. This theme culminates in the gospel. The tax collectors and Pharisees grumble about Jesus' ministry, and they say, oh, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I wonder if from time to time Jesus looked around at the people following him and thought, how exactly am I supposed to form a church from these people? They're so sinful, prostitutes and cheaters, traitors, deniers, sick in body and soul, broken to the core. As a human, maybe he didn't always like being pulled on, challenged, tested, watched, chased, touched, sneezed on, coughed on, bled on. He probably didn't much like the people who betrayed and denied and tortured and mocked and crucified him, but he did love them. Like then plays a minor role in grace. Love plays a major role. By the way, I used that sentence in my former parish. You know those old church signs that churches used to have where you could change the message every week? One time I spelled out on our church sign, we welcome sinners and eat with them. And the congregation freaked out. I don't know what they found more offensive, the implication that they were the sinners being welcomed and fed, or the idea that they were in fact supposed to welcome other sinners and feed them. I kept reminding them that I didn't invent that sentence, that it in fact came from the Bible, but still they remained offended. At any rate, it did not land so well, so I kept it up a long time. In all of these examples, from Exodus, from 1 Timothy, from Luke, there is love even when there is not necessarily like. From the golden calf rebellion at the foot of Mount Sinai, God renews God's promise to love these people despite the fact that God does not like them at that moment at all. From a distance, Paul writes to his friend Timothy to encourage him to love his congregation even when Timothy doesn't much like them. In the gospel, Jesus gathers and loves people who are very much unlikable, the outcast ones, the vulnerable ones, the powerless ones. And Jesus even goes so far as to love the ones he dislikes the most, like the Pharisees and the scribes, by dying even for them. It's easy to love the ones that we like and understand and agree with. It's more challenging to love the ones we don't like, don't agree with, or don't even understand. I beg of you to dig deep as we prepare to welcome Nicole Mietz family to Iowa City next week. There is much to not understand about this family from Ukraine. Their language, their politics, their culture, their violent history. But I beg that this lack of understanding does not lead to a lack of like or a lack of love. There is much unknown. We are all learning as we go. Whether they are here for a month or a year or ten years, we begin with them from a place of love, even if the liking is difficult due to barriers such as language. If we begin from a place of love, I trust with all my heart that the like will come. We can love even if we don't yet know how to like. This doesn't pertain only to other people, but it also pertains to your own self.
So when you feel your most unlikable, even when you dislike, maybe even despise yourself, grace still abounds. Every day we all do and say and think things that are most displeasing to God, but God still loves us. I mean, I'm sure God didn't much like what Adam and Eve did, but God still loved them. God exiles them, but God sews them clothes beforehand to keep them warm because God loves them even when they do that very thing God commanded them not to do. If God does not destroy God's people for worshiping idols the minute Moses leaves them on their own, and if God does not destroy the church for his false teachings, manipulation, judgment, and abuse, and if God does not destroy the world for our intolerance of others, our harm to creation, our bloodlust, and if God does not destroy the entire cosmos for murdering God's only son, then I think we have a pretty good idea of the depth of God's love for humanity. In fact, there is a passage from Romans describing that very love that God has for all people. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, writes Paul, former disliked and despised, persecutor of the church, chief of sinners, beloved child of God. My dearest life mentor, Dwayne Preby, told me once in seminary, Always allow yourself to be fascinated by your congregation. And I said, I don't understand that at all. And he said, I don't know. It's a weird way of loving people you don't always like. God welcomes you into God's kingdom. The wayward, the rebellious, the false, and the broken. God welcomes you and eats with you and walks with you. God wrestles with you and struggles with you and weeps with you. God holds you fast even when you shake your fist at God. In your most unlikable moments when you are most disliked by others and yourself, God calls you most beloved. For that is what grace looks like. Amen.